Well, church, it's, a, it's an honor to be here with you today. For those who I haven't met as yet, my name is Mihir Sarkar. I serve as the Director of Integration and Mixed Groups here at Hope Markham. Uh, Pastor Paul is out of town, and so uh, we're going to be going through God's Word together today. Um, I just want to do a bit of a recap here as we get back into James. Over the past few weeks, Pastor Paul uh, Little, he's taken us through the first, half to, the first chapter, uh, the, excuse me, the first half of chapter one in the book of James. And we started off the very first week, we saw the context, and we saw how James was written to the early church, and they fled Jerusalem due to the persecution they were facing. After that, the week after, we learned how God's plan for transformation in the believer's life comes about through the tests of our faith. I love how Pastor Paul Little said this. He said, uh, God transforms us not from the mountaintop experiences, but in the midst of the valleys. And then last week we learned that because of God's power that he has given us right here, right now, through his spirit, that we can indeed be victorious over sin in our lives. And so today, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. That's the text that we're going to read. Once you're there, would you please stand with me? Let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word together. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father in heaven, Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look at James chapter one today, help us to understand how our faith can be put into practice. I pray that by the power of your word, you would convict us and help us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word until the day that you call us home or until the day of Jesus Christ when we meet you again. Help us to rest in this assurance that you are with us and to put our hands to the plow by using the gifts and talents that you've given us. And we pray that you would help us to do this all for your glory as you have promised to transform us daily into the image of Christ. I pray for those here, Lord, who don't know you today or who might not know you, that they would understand that Jesus, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them. I pray that as we go through some of this practical application in James, that it wouldn't be a moralistic message of trying harder to be a good person on our own merits, but instead, let this be a message of what Christ can do 
if we accept him as Lord and Savior and what he works in us. And so we lift up this time to you now, Lord, and we ask that you would transform our hearts and be present. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take your seats. So we're going to dive right in today, church. There's quite a bit to cover, but the big idea that we're going to see from today's text is this. We're going to see that genuine faith leads to genuine action. Genuine faith leads to genuine action. That's the big idea of our book today, or of our passage. Now, before we begin, there is some key context that we need to understand, and this applies to the book of James as a whole, and this is very important, so I want you to take a look up at the slides with me. Uh, There's a slide that they're going to put up there. Now, when we see, this might look a little complicated, we're going to go through it. When we see the concept of salvation in Scripture, it's actually presented to us, believe it or not, in three separate tenses. See, we live in that middle area, that green one you see there, and this is called sanctification. This is our present Christian lives, if you've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. But I want to start off with these. Let's look, off, let's look at the left. We're going to go through them quickly. All the way at the left, we have justification. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have been justified in the sight of God. You've been saved in the past, and you've been saved from the penalty of sin, which was death. Because of the fact that you've trusted that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life on your behalf, and he died a terrible death in your place before rising again to give you eternal life. That's what we called that moment when you accepted him. That's what we call the act of justification. You've been justified in the sight of God. And that means that when God the Father looks at you, he sees you redeemed by the blood, perfect as his son, Jesus Christ is. That's your position in the sight of God. Now, if you look at the middle here, sanctification, when we, when we went through the book of Philippians in our last series, in chapter 2, verse 12, we saw that Paul showed us, he said, work out your salvation daily. And so he referred to salvation in a present tense. Or you can write this down in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The apostle Paul says this, he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, we're told that salvation is happening to us daily. We're being saved. But how can that be if we're already saved? And that's because presently in this life, we are saved from sin's power. That's what we went through last week. So we're in this process, and it's called sanctification. It is just a fancy word of how... Each day, little by little, we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing in our lives. And so in this life, there's a tension. There's a tension that we have to live through. On one hand, we've been given a new nature. We've been given new life in Jesus Christ. And if you've trusted in him, the spirit of God resides in you. But at the same time, we live and we walk in these bodies of flesh or bodies of death, as the Apostle Paul calls it. And so through our time in God's word, through the test of our, test of our faith, through our fellowship with one another, God is transforming us each day to be more and more like Christ, to put to death the old and to live out of the new nature. And so if you've been saved, 
The person that you are today shouldn't be the person that you were a year ago or shouldn't be the person that you were five years ago. This is our sanctification. And I, I think the, really the reason we're going through this is because this is key to our understanding in the book of James. If we don't understand that this is a daily battle, then we can leave the book of James being incredibly discouraged. You see, sanctification is about progress over time. It's not about perfection. It's about progress over time. Now, we're going to get to perfection. And if you look at the right there, you'll see the word glorification at the top. Now, again, I know these are, uh, it's a lot of terminology, but I think it's important to understand these. So we see salvation, lastly, referred to in Scripture in a future tense. That's called our glorification. That's the day that one day, if we're saved, we'll be ultimately saved from sin's presence. And that's when Christ will return or when we'll die and as believers, we're united with him. So whenever that day is for each of us, we're gonna be given new bodies. It's gonna be completely new and the presence of sin will be completely gone. And so again, let me just cover that. When we're saved, we're saved from sin's penalty in the past we're saved from sin's power in the present, and we're saved from sin's presence in the future. And you'll also notice this one last thing. You see, justification can happen in a moment. The minute you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're justified in God's sight. Glorification happens in the moment. The minute we die or the minute Christ returns, we are glorified with him. But sanctification takes a lifetime. You see, our lives as believers, over time, should be producing fruit. We should be becoming more and more like Christ. As the days pass, as the months pass, this is the big idea of the book of James, that if we say that we have faith in Jesus Christ, then our genuine faith should produce genuine action. It should produce results. Now let's get started. Let's look at our first point. Uh, look with me at verses 19 to 21 in your Bibles again. Let's read that. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And we're going to see our first big idea, which is this. Genuine faith should result and removing the filth and receiving the word. James starts off, he calls the recipients of this letter his beloved brothers, and that means he's speaking to fellow believers. But he, he then gets very practical and he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, you might have heard this saying before, or, or maybe you know, it's, uh, it's been a mother or uncle or aunt who said this to us, you have two ears, one mouth, and so listen more than you speak. But you see, the, the natural man, our tendency in this fallen world is to actually do the complete opposite of verse 19. We're slow to hear, we're quick to speak, and we're quick to anger. That is our fallen nature. I want you to listen to this one definition of anger. It's by the American Psychology Institute. Anger is a negative feeling state that is typically associated with hostile thoughts. It generally develops in response to the unwanted actions of another person or a circumstance that affects you negatively. And so James, he's instructing us to do the complete opposite of our natural response. 
Whether someone cuts you off on the highway, you're tempted to curse them under your breath. I know I've been guilty of that. Or a coworker gets a recognition or promotion that you think you deserve and you're tempted to hold a grudge against them. Or when someone treats you unfairly. James is telling us as believers that we ought to be people who are different in our response. We're set apart. We're called to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You know, in our society today, as I meditated upon this some more, in our society today, we have entire industries that are built on how quickly people can react to certain topics. There's no shortage of people on social media who are posting their opinions or disagreements with one another. And people are quick to speak about every topic under the sun. And if you look at the comment section in any video, it fills up real quick. Any opposing view that someone else has is immediately shut down because we're slow to listen. We are quick to speak and we are quick to anger. There's no openness to having true discussions. And I think as a gen- in, in general, our society values the witty person, the person who has a quick response, the person that is able to respond right away regardless of how others feel. But brothers and sisters, James is imploring us here, and I'm preaching this to myself, to live like Christ would. You see, all of this points to Jesus Christ. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said about Christ and how the Lord reacted in the face of persecution right before his crucifixion. Isaiah chapter 53, verse seven. This is what he says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So that's our Lord Jesus Christ. So for us as believers, friends, Jesus Christ is the model. And if God is transforming us to be more and more like Christ daily, then the result of our faith should be to actively be putting to death these fallen responses and to be seeking to be more like Christ. See, we have to actively remember and extend grace and forgiveness because we know the grace and forgiveness that has been extended to us in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 20. James goes on to say that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's a school of thought today, and I think many of us have grown up with it. It's in modern psychology. And part of this school of thought, and it's been like this for, since 1879, this is the school of thought. It says, if you have an emotion that you can't control, then you need an outlet for that emotion. And so, for example, if you're angry, the best way to deal with your anger is to go somewhere that you can safely express it. There are places now, believe it or not, where you can rent a room for an hour. This is a real thing. You can rent a room for an hour. They'll give you a hammer or a sledgehammer. And you can spend an hour smashing things into pieces as an outlet for your frustration. Now, while that may give you a temporary release in the moment, friends, what are you going to do when you have nowhere to go? It's a safe outlet. You see, God's word is telling us here that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a definitive statement. And so if we feed our anger, it's only going to grow worse. Listen, listen to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. It says this, A fool gives full vent to his anger, 
but a wise man quietly holds it back. Or look at the screen with me here. They have Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Let's look at that together. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what the Apostle Paul says. So I want you to notice, the reason we put this on the screen here, notice that fits of anger are deeds of the flesh. And so anger, this, these sorts of, this sort of anger, it comes from our carnal, our old nature. And we're told in James that it does not produce the righteousness of God, and so we need to put it to death. We have to actively fight this. Now, I want to be clear about something here. The Bible doesn't always condemn anger. Through the scriptures, we see that God himself is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, but there are times when he indeed does get angry. But the difference is this. His anger is a righteous anger, and it has to do with the slander of God's character or an injustice against his holiness. And you see this, for example, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus, who is God incarnate, enters into the temple and he drives those out who are desecrating God's house by turning it into a business or what he calls a den of thieves or a den of robbers. So again, James is speaking about a very specific type of worldly anger. This is the anger of man. And so I would be so bold as to say this for all of us here, or maybe I'll I'll speak for myself here, the majority of times that I get angry isn't because God's character is slandered, sadly but it's out of a self-focused view. See, somehow, in some way, I've been wronged. And anger is a temporary way of me enacting immediate justice. Friends, this is the work of the flesh, and so James is saying that we need to actively turn away from this. This is the battle for all of us. Now, I want you to look at verse 21 with me. Let's keep going. This is where I think that we see the method or the how in which James calls us to remove anger. Listen to what verse 21 says. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I heard another pastor use this illustration once and so I'm gonna ask you the exact same question. For those of you here who are parents, I want you to answer this question. What would happen if right before dinner you fed your kids a box of chocolates? Right before dinner, you gave them a big box of chocolates. You see, they would lose their appetite for dinner. And why is that? It's because they've eaten junk. And that junk has suppressed their appetite. The true, nutritious food that they were supposed to eat at dinner time suddenly it doesn't look so good anymore. Because they ate junk, they're gonna miss out on the true sustenance and the true life that comes from the proper meal. And in the same way, friends, I think this is exactly what James is telling us here. Listen to what he says. If you look back at the verse, he says, put away all filthiness, wickedness, and then receive with meekness the implanted word. And so if we fill our days, our minds, and our hearts with sin, we're not going to have the appetite for the life-giving word of God. That's what's able to save our soul. See, we must remove and then receive. 
We have to remove and then receive. This is what James is telling us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this. He says this in Colossians chapter three. It should be up on the screen. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living under them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. A little while ago uh, at our church, we had a few baptisms. And as I was sitting in the room with one of the baptismal candidates, I was in the back speaking with them. uh, They said this to me. They said, you know, before I knew Christ, I used to watch all sorts of TV shows, late night talk shows, entertainment, and all sorts of things. But now I have no appetite for them anymore. I'm so convicted that it doesn't bring me joy anymore. Now, when I have time to spare, I watch evangelism videos online and I watch people share the gospel. See, this blew my mind Because when that person said that to me, that right there was evidence of their genuine faith. Now, I'm not saying that all entertainment is wrong. This isn't legalistic, right? I want to be clear that we didn't do anything to become clean first in order to be saved or forgiven. What I'm saying is, is that genuine faith actively results in removing filth. And we actively, we actively fight our old lifestyles, our old habits, our old desires, And then we receive with meekness the word of Christ. And again, I want you to remember that we are in this present tense of salvation. That's why we went through that in the beginning. This is our sanctification. So when James says that this is the word of Christ which is able to save our souls, he is saying that this is our sanctification. The saving here points to God actively changing us daily, day by day in this battle. Listen to what Christ says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so genuine faith should result in us removing filth and angers included in that and then receiving with humility the word of God. This is the whole big point. But now let's move on. Let's move on to verses 22 to 25. We're going to see our second big idea here. Genuine faith should result in true obedience. Genuine faith should result in true obedience. Let's read these verses together again. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, I'm married to my uh, wonderful wife, Victoria. We have four young children. They're all between the ages of one and, and seven years old. And last week... I want to share a story with you. We were taking our two older kids uh, ice skating. 
Now for me, I haven't put on skates in uh, probably about 15 years at least minimum. And some of you, you may be experts at skating or playing hockey, but for me, um, I can go on the ice and I can go forward and that's about it. And so as our kids, we, got, we finally got, we got, it was in Angus Glen, we got there, we, we were putting our, the skates on them and from my memory of skating 15 plus years ago, I was telling them some basic skills of how they could improve. You see, from what I remembered in my mind, skating, I mean, skating really didn't look that hard. But here's the reality of what happened, okay? When we got to the ice, our kids went on, and then I stepped on the ice, and I could barely balance. I literally had, I held on to the sides of the skating rink for my entire first round around. I almost fell multiple times. I think there was probably a few people laughing at me and according to my wife who was laughing uncontrollably at this point, taking a video of this whole thing, um, she said I transformed into a senior citizen. That's what she said. So you see, this is my point with this here, is that all the knowledge of how to skate that I had in my mind was much harder to apply in real life. And you see, that's, I think that's exactly what James is saying in this passage. Knowing is not equal to doing. So knowing is not equal to doing, right? And how does that apply to us today? I think what it means is this. No matter how many good sermons you listen to, no matter how much Bible knowledge you have, no matter what amazing biblical book or podcast you've read and heard, no matter what seminary degree you may have, unless you are putting into practice what you are hearing, then friends, you are deceiving yourselves. That's what James says. Now, this applies to me as well. You see, the preacher standing in the pulpit may have a good message, but unless he is doing what he's saying, then again, notice God's word says here that we're deceiving ourselves. The book of Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 17, nine to 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, God says that we're gonna be giving according to our ways, according to the fruit of our deeds. So it's not just what we've heard, but it's what we've applied in our lives. Friends, scripture has always shown, I believe Pastor Paul went over this a few weeks back, but scripture has always shown that wisdom is knowledge that is applied. It's not just accumulated head knowledge. Now, I love the way that one person put it. Uh, This is what they said. This is a quote. This is what they said. The biggest takeaway from a Bible verse that you read or from a sermon on Sunday morning isn't how convicted you are. It's what you do about it. It's what you do about it. You see, the the danger is this. In our Christian walk, we can think that by accumulating enough knowledge that somehow we are more spiritually mature. But this would be the exact equivalent, friends, of me going on the internet, researching all the facts I can about the best ice skates around, watching videos, how-to videos on how to skate, thinking that I'm gonna be a better skater than anyone else around me, but then never stepping foot on the actual rink. And you can go on with many examples with this. This could be like a pilot, for example, that read an instruction manual but never actually flew a plane. And an athlete that studied a sport but never actually played it. But this is the point here. According to scripture, knowledge is wisdom applied 
and application is key to our sanctification. I'm gonna say that again. Knowledge is wisdom applied and application is key to our sanctification. Now, there's something I need to say in all of this. I think we have a propensity perhaps to do this, but don't go home tonight and go to the other extreme and be discouraged or not read your Bible or not listen to sermons. Because you see, I think that's a natural result that could come of this, but we need to remember this here. The Bible doesn't negate hearing God's word because hearing is important too. There's power in the word of God. Ephesians chapter six, verse 17. I'm gonna share three quick verses with you. Ephesians chapter six, verse 17 says, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Or in Matthew chapter four, Jesus says that the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in Jeremiah chapter 23 again, God says this in verse 29. He says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And so there is power in the word of God. James is simply telling us that we must hear the word, but we must also do it. It's not either or, it's both and, both together. We must hear the word and we must do it. And so hearing is the first step, but then doing is equally important and the second step to all of this as well. Both are equally important. And so genuine faith is gonna result in hearing and doing. I believe that is true obedience. That is what James is speaking about here. Now let's go on to verses 23 to 24. Let's look at that together. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror and goes away and at once, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. You see, for years I used to read this passage and I wondered why God gave us the example of a mirror. But now I understand that for us here in this physical world, if you want to see the truth about yourself, there's only one way you can do that. And you need to go look in a mirror. You see, when you stand in front of a mirror, it doesn't care about your feelings, it doesn't have any filters, it doesn't touch up your appearance. It tells you exactly how you look in that moment. It displays the perfect reality of who you are. And so for me, I know, you know, if I'm tired, I see dark circles under my eyes. Or if my hair is all over the place, you'll see that as well. And the list could go on. See, in the same way for us, brothers and sisters, the spiritual mirror for us is God's word. That is our mirror. God's word doesn't sugarcoat the truth. Jesus says in John chapter 17, when he prays this to the Father concerning the disciples, he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so notice in verse 23, this man, he looks intently at the mirror and that's what we're called to do. By looking intently at the word of God, we can get a true understanding of who we are in light of God's word. We can understand our blemishes. We can understand the things that we need to repent from. We can understand what God desires for us. We even understand bigger picture, bigger picture things like what the family is or what our purpose in life is, what's right and wrong, what true love is, what church is, who God is. You see, God's word reveals to us all truth concerning spiritual reality. And then it shows us how we need to apply that reality in our lives. 
Theologians call this the sufficiency of Scripture. It's called the sufficiency of Scripture. Now we need to go on, so let's look at verse 24 together. He goes on to say that this man looks at himself intently, but he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And so this is it. If you've read or heard or been convicted by something, then we're called to put it into practice. But if not, then we are as foolish as the man that walks away from a mirror and forgets what he looks like. You see, the result of our faith cannot end in conviction. It needs to end in action. Our faith needs to be put into practice and we need to do the things that we've been taught. This is true obedience. This is what James is speaking to here. But let's go on to verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so James intentionally refers to the word of God here as the perfect law and the law of liberty. You see this terminology, you see it throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament, but this term law of liberty, I want to take a moment to explain what does that exactly mean? What is the law of liberty? Let me share with you an illustration I heard used before. When you were driving to church this morning, as you were going down the street and you saw a red light, now you have the liberty to do this, but what if you went through that red light? Now, you may not immediately get into an accident, but suppose that red, you go through that red light each and every day. Now at some point, you will hit another car, likely, causing massive chaos and damage, maybe to even to another person's life. But I want you to imagine this now. What if everyone starts ignoring red lights? How would you feel about driving on the road? You see, the red light, it was put there not to restrict you, it was put there to protect you. You have the ability not to obey it, but the boundary of the law, it is given to you for, the, for your benefit and for the benefit of others so that you can function in the best way possible, so you can enjoy your ride and you can actually make it to your final destination safely. See, I believe this is exactly the, the, what he means here by law of liberty is that God's laws are not meant to harm us. They're meant to protect us They're meant for our good. God is the one who made us. He loves us and he knows what is best for us. Pastor John MacArthur, he's a well-known preacher. He says this, and I think it captures the essence of verse 25. He says this, true liberty is not the license to do what we want, but rather the assistance to do what we ought. And so brothers and sisters, sin may tell us otherwise, but We will never experience freedom by choosing sin over God's ways. True freedom is to walk in the obedience of God's ways that he has revealed to us. This is what the Holy Spirit enables us to do and he convicts us to live in this true freedom as we seek to do this daily. This is what we persevere in and then God's word says that we're blessed in our doing. Now let's move on to our third and final point for today. Genuine faith should result in the practice of true religion. Look at me at verses 26 to 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
And so right off the bat, James tells us, he says that if any of us think that we're religious, if we think that we're living out our faith well, if we can't control our tongues, then again, he goes back to what he said in verse 19, we are deceiving ourselves. Our speech, our words, everything that's produced by our tongues here, the control of these words, this is a reflection of the maturity in our faith and it's what makes our practice worthy or worthless. Now that may sound harsh, but Jesus tells this to the Pharisees. Listen to what he says to the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. A tree is known by its fruit. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then a few chapters later in Matthew 15, he says that what comes out of our mouth is what defiles us. And so I think the whole point is this. When you look at what James is telling us here, when you look at what corresponds to us in the Gospels and God's word, the whole point is this. A restrained tongue that has pure, self-controlled speech, this is the external portrayal of an inwardly pure heart. So this is from the inside out. This isn't a legalistic thing. This is from the inside out. Now, our words, they are the result of our hearts. That's the principle we see through Scripture. And what we say can be used for great good in building up others. We can honor our Father in heaven. We can praise Him. Or our words can be used for great evil. We can cut down. We can destroy those who are made in God's image. But we need to strive to be people who are set apart from the world to bridle our tongues, that's how we bring glory to God in this way. And we're gonna study this a lot more. We don't have time for this today. We actually go into this in James chapter three. So as we continue on with our series, James chapter three will expound on this a whole lot more. But let's move on to verse 27. He text goes on to say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So quickly, Why orphans and widows? That's because in biblical times, orphans and widows were the most vulnerable part of society. Widows couldn't find work opportunities. They didn't have steady income. They had very little rights without a husband to care for them. And so the book of Ruth, for example, in the Old Testament, if you go through that, it's beautiful. It speaks of God's redemption of Ruth through Boaz, a young widow, or Ruth who's a young widow through Boaz. And so orphans, again, let's why that? Like widows, they also had no one to care for them. They also had no one to provide for them and they were often taken advantage of in society. And so this was the class of society that was the most afflicted and went through the most amount of trials. If you notice in the Old Testament, as you go through that, God commands the Israelites to take care of orphans and widows and I would even say that he determines the character of Israel by this. In the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verses 22 to 23, God says this to the Israelites. Listen to this. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And then he goes on to pronounce judgment to those that do this. And so clearly God has great care for the orphans. He he has great care for the widows. And our faith should result in caring for the helpless as well. I think this has great application for us today because again, I think this really goes back to the whole principle of this chapter that we can be book smart, we can be Bible-headed people, but if we aren't serving others using the time and talent and treasure that's given to us to help those in need in our society or even the vulnerable within this church, 
then what is all that knowledge worth, friends? You see, we aren't practicing, according to God, as God's word says this, we aren't practicing pure and undefiled religion before God the Father unless we are caring for the helpless. And so remember, we can't just be convicted by this. We have to be doers of the word and put this into action. And then lastly, James goes on to say that religion that is pure and undefiled is also to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a big topic, but we're gonna just quickly, I think 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 summarize this well. Let me read this to you. It says, do not love the things of this world. Do not love the world, excuse me, or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so scripture makes it clear that this fallen world that we live in, its systems, its values, they are against the eternal things of God. The things in this world, the things that this world will have you run after, and just as a few examples here, money, success, fame, reputation, the idolatry of health and wealth, these are not of God. And pure religion is to be unstained by these things, is what James says. Jesus tells us, he says, you can't serve, you cannot serve two masters. And so we can't be chasing the world, the things of this world on one hand, and then expect to have maturity in our faith, or fruit in our faith on the other hand. Now, being unstained from the world doesn't mean hiding away. It doesn't mean that we turn into monks or we move up to the mountains somewhere and you know, we get away from everyone and everything. It simply means that as we grow in our faith, as we walk in obedience, as we actively put to death the old nature and live out of the new, we become more and more consumed with the things of God and not the things of this world. And so as we grow in our faith, we look forward to that day, all of us. Remember, we're in that middle tense, but we look forward to that day where we're gonna be fully satisfied in his presence because the things of this life are no longer gonna consume our hearts or our minds. And so in conclusion, I just wanna quickly speak here. I recognize that today's message could lead to one of two potential false beliefs. And I just wanna warn you about this before we go. Number one, you can walk away thinking that there's no way that you can do any of this. You can allow yourself to feel discouraged. You can live under the lie that you know, you'll never change or that you don't need to put in the effort because somehow God is gonna do all the work for you or with no effort on your part. Or number two, you can also leave here today incorrectly thinking that you can just power through. You can work hard to apply all of these things, but you can do it in your own strength and eventually you can fizzle out. Now, I want us to instead to be encouraged today and so look at what God promises to us through the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. It's gonna be up there on the screen. Chap- book of Philippians chapter one, verse six. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so as you abide in Christ, which means as you depend on him in prayer, as you seek him daily, he is the one that'll give us strength He's the one that'll give us strength to control our tongues. He's the one that will convict us by his spirit when we fall short, when we speak wrongly against a neighbor or a coworker, or when we do something wrongly against our very own spouses or parents or children. He is the one that's gonna give us the grace to hold back when we're about to speak rashly or he's gonna give us conviction 
to change in these areas or to serve the orphans and widows in our lives and in our neighborhoods. And so he will help us to put off, we saw that concept of putting off, he will help us to put off our old lifestyle and habits and he will, he's the one that has promised us that he will help us in this journey of being hearers and doers of the word. And so that's why we started off today with that whole understanding, that whole difference between sanctification, glorification, because this life right now daily, this is a battle and we don't need to be discouraged. We aren't perfect. This isn't about perfection. That's going to come one day at glorification. But we simply need to be making progress. This is about progress, the fruit that comes of our trust in, Lord, or of our, trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we strive daily towards sanctification, remember it's him in us that will bear fruit. It's not going to be instantaneous, but over time as God works in you and through you, we're going to become more and more like our Heavenly Father and like Jesus Christ, who will shine through us. We do have to put an effort, but as the Apostle Paul said, it is God who works in us and through us. He will bring to completion the good work he has started until the day that we meet Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray as we close. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice upon the cross and what he did in our place. And Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in us. Help us, Lord, as we walk away today from this message, help us to depend daily on you. You're the one who has promised to bring to completion the work that you started in us, but you've also called us to strive daily. And so give us the strength to do this. Father, I pray that our lives would be a representation of Christ in us. Ultimately, all of this is about you. You are perfect and we can't live up to that standard of perfection, but you make progress in us each day. And so I pray as we look forward to the day that when we will know you in full perfection in your presence, that now in this life, Lord, you would be the one who sanctifies us and you would help us to rely upon you. I pray for all those today who have heard this, Lord, that they would have hope. And Father, for those who don't know you, again, I pray that this wouldn't be a message of trying harder, but indeed a message of what Christ produces in us. And so we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.